Are you ready then? The views and recommendations expressed in this podcast are general in nature and are not intended to be taken or substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your personal medical and mental health providers who may offer you appropriate support regarding your specific psychological needs. Mike and I headed over to the bank to get a cash advance on my MasterCard. I felt good since I'd paid my bill a few weeks before. The service rep disappeared into his office. Before long, he returned, announcing that I couldn't get any money, and worse, that he'd have to keep my card. After waiting for nearly 10 minutes, I caught the service rep and a man I took to be the manager in my peripheral vision as they headed to an empty desk. The manager opened the drawer and pulled out a pair of scissors. The blood began to boil in my veins. Those scissors could only mean one thing. He was going to cut my card in two, and with it, my dignity. The manager hadn't had decency or respect to speak to me directly before obviously taking action. Sir, if you're about to do what I fear you will, can you please talk first? Of course he ignored me and sliced my card in half before what had now become a considerable crowd. Mike trailed close behind me, crying, tearfully asking me over and over again, Daddy, what's going on? I hurried into the manager's office and begged him for privacy to spare me further embarrassment. I told him I was a good customer of his bank. I said that had I been wearing a three-piece suit and not the black running suit I had on, and had I been a white man, he would have spared me the humiliation of having what felt like my manhood snipped before a leering crowd of onlookers who only saw an enraged and deflated black man. The manager showed no sympathy. I'm calling the police on you. I knew that if I stayed, it was likely the police wouldn't hear me either, and I'd only end up arrested in front of my son, leaving him even more mortified than he was already. I grabbed Mike's hand and beat a hasty retreat right as the police were pulling up. The Bangs board eventually apologized to me and issued me a new MasterCard. But the incident reminded me yet again that no matter how many I believe degrees and education I had, I was still a nigger in the eyes of many white folk. Michael Eric Dyson, in his book, The Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Welcome to Race Matters, a race positive production. This is the show where we look at the psychology behind everyday life to answer the question, why does race matter? This is Dr. Anika, and today we're talking about racial profiling. Have you ever been publicly humiliated? Now, before you say no, just think about it for like a second. Maybe it was something small at a birthday party in the fifth grade. You asked someone to dance and they said no, loudly. Or maybe it was larger, right? Maybe you thought you were going to get a job or a promotion and you got so excited you told everybody about it. And then the job went to someone else. We've all been there. We've all had moments in our lives when we felt small, less than, and exposed due to the actions or words of somebody else. Public shaming is typically some kind of dishonoring or disgrace of a person in a public setting. 
And we've seen it played out in all manners of our society, right? Whether it's wearing the dunce cap in school because you got something wrong, the scarlet letter with the A on it for committing adultery, and we've even upgraded it in the 21st century with social media and online streaming where people get called out for something that they've done or said. We can probably spend an entire episode discussing call-out culture, right? Whether it's effective or not, where and when to use it, all of that. But that's not where this is going. Public shaming on its own account can have pretty incredible impacts on us. Just go back for a second to that moment that you just thought about, that embarrassing moment. How did it affect you? Those moments are powerful. They stay with us. They shape us. They influence how we see and carry ourselves, the things we do and say, the people we engage with or don't, even where we go. So when it comes to public shaming, why does race matter? The first thing is racial profiling. Racial profiling, according to the ACLU, is a practice of using a person's race or color, ethnicity, even their national origin to determine whether to stop, search, or investigate that person for an alleged crime or criminal activity. In a 2007 study, there was a telephone survey that went out to about 500 Philadelphia area residents, and the researcher was Penn State University professor Sean Gabadon and his colleague George Higgins. And in their interview, they found that African Americans were 10 times more likely than non-blacks to say that they had been profiled while shopping. This experience of inequity when it comes to profiling is something that we've seen repeated time and time again. In 2018, Huffington Post and YouGov came together to make a poll, and they wanted to assess the racial experiences of Americans. They got 1,000 people in their poll, and 54% of the African Americans who took the poll said that they felt others had been suspicious of them based on their skin color. That compared to the number, which was 6% of white people who said the same thing. In that poll, 55% of African Americans said yes to the question, have you ever felt like you've been treated unfairly in a store because of your race? Again, only 7% of whites said yes. One more study. In 2016, the American Psychological Association, they conducted a study with over 3,000 participants, and they found that 75% of people of color reported significantly higher experiences of discrimination and discriminatory treatment compared to their white peers. Now, they define discriminatory treatment as unjustified questioning by the police or threats, uh, treated with disrespect by others, considered less intelligent, having an unfriendly neighbor who made life difficult for them, or even being discouraged by a teacher from pursuing further education. This really isn't just a bunch of people of color being too sensitive. The store employee of a few stores have actually named that racial profiling is something that's really promoted. I'll give you an example. In stores like Zara and CVS, employees have come out to say that they were instructed to identify and track black shoppers, some of them using cold words or racial slurs to identify their shoppers. In 2014, retailers Macy's and Barney's both entered settlement agreements of over half a million dollars with the New York Attorney General after they were found to disproportionately arrest and falsely charge black customers with credit card fraud 
after they made expensive purchases. In recent years, there have been a string of cases of racial profiling that have made the news. They've trended on social media. They've even prompted some companies to revise or implement new diversity policies. Whether it's the 2018 case in which two black men, Rashawn Nelson and Dante Robinson, they were arrested when an employee at Starbucks in Philadelphia called the cops on them because they requested to use the bathroom without making a purchase while they waited for a colleague. By the way, who hasn't done that? I mean, really, we've all been there. We needed to pee so badly and Starbucks was the only bathroom available and you paid for nothing, but I digress. Anyway, they had this incident happen and it prompted Starbucks to issue an apology and they shut down their stores for a mandatory diversity training. Also in 2018, there was an incident of a black woman in Tennessee. Her name was Jovita Jones Cage. She was handcuffed in front of patrons and accused of shoplifting at a Victoria's Secret store after she returned her bra with a sensor on it and decided to browse before leaving the store. She was escorted from the store and banned from ever returning. Victoria's Secret later offered her an apology, noting that the employee who accused her had been fired and that they were going to make efforts to educate other employees on racial matters. There are scores more of examples of people of color every day doing everyday things, whether it's sitting in their car, reading a book, entering an apartment building that they live in, moving into an apartment building that they plan to live in, taking a phone call in the lobby of a hotel they have a room in, attempting to use a private pool they have legal access to, barbecuing in a public park, or sleeping in the common area of their dorm room. Time and time again, we see this experience being called out people of color having to deal with their presence or their actions being questioned by somebody who assumed something negative about them and their motives. Here's the psychological impact of racial profiling. Research has shown that black people are often subjected to heightened scrutiny and suspicion, which begins early in childhood. In 2014, researcher Philip Goff found that by the age of 10, black boys were typically seen as less innocent than their white peers. A Georgetown University study that came out in 2017, they found that black girls as young as five were already being perceived as more adult-like and less innocent than their white peers of the same age. Not only does racial profiling not work, it tends to incite feelings of helplessness, frustration, anxiety, and anger for the people who are innocent victims of it. When speaking of his study with the Philadelphia 500, Dr. Gabadon argues that even if the profiling is just a perception on the part of the black people in his study, there's still a stark difference in the level of perception found between blacks and whites. And we've seen studies that show the racial profiling tends to generate higher levels of stress, anger, shock, sadness among blacks. And that means that even if you're not actually being profiled, feeling like you are is just as harmful as being profiled. That takes us to thing two, racial microaggressions. The term racial microaggressions was first presented by Dr. Chester Pierce in the 1970s, but it's been studied by countless others. It's defined by researcher and psychologist Dr. Daryl Wing Sue as everyday insults, indignities, and demeaning messages sent to people of color by well-intentioned white people who are not aware of the hidden messages being sent to them. 
Sue takes it even further and he categorizes these microaggressions into three distinct groups. Microsaults, which he defines are conscious and intentional actions or slurs. For example, using a racial epithet or displaying a swastika, deliberately serving a white person before a person of color at a restaurant. Microinsults, these are verbal and nonverbal communications that subtly convey rudeness and insensitivity, and they demean the person's racial heritage or identity. Like an employee who asks a person of color, how did you get this job? Implying that they landed it through affirmative action or some sort of quota system, not by their own merits. And lastly, micro-invalidations. Those are communications that subtly exclude, negate, nullify the thoughts and feelings, even the experiences of people of color. For example, a white person asking Asian Americans where were they born, which conveys a sense that they're perpetual foreigners in their own land. Now, I'm going to take a risk here and guess that at least one of you may be thinking, oh, come on, Dr. Nika, these examples sound like rude people being rude. This isn't about race. These are matters of etiquette and insensitivity, and we just have to be better at respecting people regardless of their race. But to you, I say this. Though it may seem reasonable to equate racial microaggressions with common everyday rudeness that we all experience in some way or another, that's not what the research is indicating. It's been found time and again that those microaggressions significantly differ in their quality and quantity from regular, general, non-racial incivility. So here's the psychological impact of racial microaggressions. Unlike moments of rudeness that come and go, microaggressions are these constant and continual forces in the lives of people of color. They have a compound effect that generate lifelong burdens of stress. And they're continual reminders that, as a person of color, you hold a second-class status in society. These experiences of discrimination have been linked to all sorts of physical and psychological conditions. From depression and anxiety, we see lower levels of emotional well-being, increased levels of stress. It undermines your problem-solving abilities, your work performance, even your learning. As for physical conditions, we see it linked to things like diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, premature death, and even cancer. So this brings us back to our question, why does race matter? If you remember from the opening vignette, Michael Eric Dyson recalls in painful detail the experience of being on the receiving end of racial profiling and racial microaggressions. As we've already outlined, in isolation, these experiences already have a significant impact on the psychological being of a person of color. But if you listen closely to Michael, he also highlights a powerful component of these experiences that I think often gets overlooked. The awareness that your vulnerability, exposure, feeling less than, in other words, your shame, is being publicly viewed. That in addition to all that you're contending with, with the added layer of having others listen, watch, and silently judge you and your experience, all the while you're feeling powerless to change it, is one of the reasons that this cuts deeper. It's one of the reasons that race matters. For people of color, these collective moments are not mere inconveniences that you put up with and vent about in your journal later before you move on with your life. They linger, they stain, and they chip away at your sense of dignity. 
They're used to assert and maintain all sorts of judgments about you and those who look like you. As we found earlier, that embarrassing moment that you had from your own life can even be recalled now and perhaps may still be impacting your life today. Now consider how that hurt and that despair gets amplified exponentially when the experience of shame is combined with experiences of racism and discrimination. Paul Butler, a Georgetown law professor, he says, when the police are called on African Americans, it has a very negative impact on those black people, even if they're not arrested, beaten up, or killed. Butler says, you're required to justify your existence and your presence in a white space. It makes you feel like less of a citizen and less of a human being. It's impossible, he says, to overstate the adverse consequences. So I decided to pull from the many stories of racial profiling, in their own words, these innocent victims saying how they felt being racially discriminated and profiled in a public space. Cheryl Johnson, she was falsely accused of stealing at a Belk store. She says, your life gets turned upside down because you become obsessed with how you reclaim your dignity and your self-respect. Sheila Stubbs, a state assemblywoman in Wisconsin, had the cops called on her for knocking on doors while campaigning. She said, I felt humiliated. I felt outraged. I felt angry. I felt embarrassed. Robert Brown, an actor who was profiled in Macy's and was falsely accused of using a fraudulent credit card after buying a $1,300 watch, says, they cuffed me, paraded me around the store, all the while maintaining, we do this all the time. It's a fake card. You're going to jail. And an online commentator who only identified themselves as TS, when they spoke of their experience, they said, I felt very embarrassed, angry, shocked, and hurt. I'd never been put through that kind of confrontation in front of others. I'm still shaken about it. As I type, my hands are shaking. So what do we do about it? By now, you're probably thinking, all right, I get it. Public shaming, racial profiling, racial microaggressions. I see it. I hear it. I understand. But what do I do about it? Well, I'd love to give you a three-point outline for how to fix all of these things, but I can't. So here's what I offer you. Just some things to consider. One, if someone trusts you enough to tell you about their experience of racial profiling, racial microaggressions, and the public shame that it's attached to them, do the honor of listening and believing them. It's incredibly invalidating and hurtful to have someone you trust question the merit of your hurt or justify the inappropriate actions of others, even in the name of playing devil's advocate. Are you allowed to think critically what, of what others tell you? Yes. Are you allowed to probe for more information if what they're saying seems to be lacking? Yes. But if you find that your skepticism and your rationalizing almost always shows up when racial matters are being discussed, then it's likely that you're dismissing truths that are not convenient for you or in some way intolerable for you. And that practice undermines your ability to truly be a support and an ally. Two, the next time you see someone pulled over, stopped, questioned at a store, on the street, accosted by a clerk, the police, Recognize your urge to assume guilt on the part of the person being checked. Take a breath and for a brief moment, put yourself in the shoes of that person. Consider how you'd want to be seen or treated by others who knew nothing of the matter and were only watching. 
then do that. It's likely you'd want them to give you the benefit of the doubt rather than assume your criminality. You perhaps even hope that they'd smile or nod in acknowledgement of you, even give you a, thum a thumbs up to ask if you're okay. When you see that person is human, not a lawbreaker about to get their just desserts, then you realize that that's a person in a situation that almost no one wants to be in. And you find yourself giving off a vibe of compassion, not one of judgment. Lastly, if you're a person of color who's experienced a racially charged public shaming, please know this. Your worth, your value, your human dignity, they are inherent. They're God-given staples that are immovable, and no one and nothing has the ability to take it away. Whether you fought back or you complied, it changes nothing about who you are and what you have the capacity to do. Racism renders its power in part by making others believe that they are powerless and are of little consequence. You're not. Take a breath. Take a break. Take care of yourself. Go to therapy. Talk to a loved one. Make healthy choices that feed your mind, your body, and your soul. And when it's safe and appropriate to do so, speak out. Tell your story to all who will listen. Because the one who controls the narrative helps to shape society. Of course, I can't leave you without giving you a couple of action steps, and so for this week, I've got a two-parter. The one, I want you to watch a movie. It's called The Gentleman's Agreement. Now, I confess it's an old movie, and yes, it's in black and white, but before you tune me out, listen, it's an incredible watch. The movie stars Gregory Peck, who plays a Christian journalist who's interested in understanding and writing about anti-Semitism. He changes nothing about his life or himself. He merely tells people that he's Jewish. And the response is staggering. Please watch it. And lastly, this is my do this recommendations. Take the implicit association test. These tests are aimed at exposing those hidden automatic stereotypes and prejudices that often circumvent our conscious awareness. It's called Project Implicit. And it's a collaborative research effort that was put together by researchers at Harvard University, the University of Virginia, and the University of Washington. It's free, but I think it's good because it helps you to uncover what are some of your own implicit biases. And for those of you who are refusing to watch a black and white old movie starring Gregory Peck, again, I ask you, please watch it. Glad that you took the time to spend with me today because you know what? These issues matter. The way that we view and feel about ourselves matter. The way that we think and feel about others matter. The way that we understand race and its weight on our lives matters. Race matters. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. It lets you get all the latest episodes automatically and helps others to find the show. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Underscore Anika. That's D-R underscore A-N-I-C, like a cat, A. This is Dr. Anika. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. They have a cumulative effect that can generate a lifelong burden and stress. You said cumulative, wrong. I did? You said cumul cum cumulative? cumulative? How do you say it? Cumulative. Cumulative?
<laughs> I never say it like that.